She can kill with a smile, she can wound with her eyes. And she can ruin your Welcome to the Skeptic's Guide to Emergency Medicine. Meet them, greet them, treat them, and street them. Today's date is September 28, 2023, and I am your skeptical host, Ken Milne. The title of today's podcast is She's Always a Woman, Query P.E. Ah, yes, another 80s classic. Anyways, our guest skeptic is Dr. Corey Heinz. He's an emergency physician in Roanoke, Virginia. He is also the CME editor for Academic Emergency Medicine. Welcome back to the SGEM, Corey, and this is your first appearance in season number 12. Thanks, Ken. I feel like it's been a little while. Good seeing you and talking to you guys again. Yeah, it's great having you back. And this will be my first episode because I had the amazing Dennis Wren. He is a superhero of pediatric emergency medicine. Have him kick off season 12. He has been such an amazing addition to the high quality, clinically relevant information we're trying to provide to the SGEMers with a critical skeptical eye. But Corey, any life updates? I mean, the last time we talked, you were you you had gotten married, you were moving houses, you were doing all of this other <laughs> stuff. I know we can't talk weather, but we can talk family. <laughs> yeah, well, 2022 was pretty crazy with building the house and getting married. Like you said, we have just passed our first year anniversary and it has been a good first year. And the, the this year, the 2023 has been much more chill than all of the craziness of last year, trying to fit everything into one year. Yeah, it's uh, it's been busy lately, hasn't it? Yep. So uh, let's get into a case. All right. Well, during a shift in the emergency department, you see two patients with pleuritic chest pain, one female and one male. Pulmonary embolism is diagnosis you're considering for both. After D-dimer testing your female patient, you order a CT scan of the chest for the male patient. One of the nurses on shift asks you why you didn't order a D-dimer for the male like you did the female. Oh, the D-dimer. We've talked a lot about the D-dimer. Not a fan of the D-dimer. But PE, pulmonary embolism, I mean, this is a commonly considered diagnosis when we're working up someone for chest pain or shortness of breath in the emergency department. And we've covered the topic more than 10 times on the SGEM over the last 11 years. So I'll put a link in the show notes of all those previous shows. Many patients may be able to have PE rule out without imaging after risk stratification with one of several decision tools. A very common clinical decision instrument is the Wells criteria. It has seven items with each item having a weighting from one to three. The score is added up and then can be applied in a three-tiered low, moderate, or high-risk, or two-tiered model, PE unlikely or likely. Yeah, and there's not a shift that goes by that I can think of that I don't go to the well and use the Wells criteria. But there is another common tool used, and it's the revised Geneva score. It's an eight-item clinical decision instrument for risk stratification. Each item in this tool also has a different weight assigned to the item. Patients are considered low, intermediate, or high risk, depending on their initial score. And I'll put a link in to both the Wells criteria and to the Geneva score in the show notes. Neither of these two scores considers the sex of the patient for risk stratification. However, sex differences exist in the workup of PE, with females receiving more diagnostic testing but with lower diagnostic yield. Female patients are also more likely to undergo diagnostic imaging, and females who undergo imaging are less likely to be diagnosed with PE. So, Corey, boom, give us the clinical question we're trying to answer on today's podcast. Are male and female patients equally likely to receive care consistent with guidelines for suspected PE? 
Oh, I'm just going to spitball here, knowing that I've done a number of episodes on gender inequity in the House of Medicine. I'm going to predict they're they're going to identify some differences, but give us the reference. Today, we're going to be talking about Jarman et al., sex differences, guideline consistent diagnostic testing for acute pulmonary embolism in academic emergency medicine, September 2023. All right, let's run through the PCOT, the population, and in this case, the exposure, comparison, outcome, and type of study. So what was the population? Patients were 18 to 49 years of age, presenting with chest pain, shortness of breath, hemoptysis, or syncope alone, or in combination. And they excluded pregnancy or incomplete ED visits. Pregnancy? Really? You're including women in this study. Anyways, that's another episode. How about the exposure? Object of testing for PE. And what were they comparing? They were comparing sex, male or female. And let's run through their outcomes. What was their primary outcome of interest? Receipt of guideline-consistent care based on the revised Geneva score. And their secondary outcomes? Rates of D-dimer testing, D-dimer positivity, rates of CT pulmonary artery scanning, and overall yield of testing. And I should have mentioned in the population, these are young patients because 18 to 49, the definition of young is anything younger than me. Old is anything older than me. And so sitting at 56, oh, these are young people. This is an SGEM hot off the press episode, which means we have the lead author on the show. Dr. Angela Jarman is an assistant professor and the director of sex and gender and emergency medicine at UC Davis. She joined the faculty there after completing a two-year fellowship in sex and gender in emergency medicine at Brown University, where she also earned a master's of public health degree. Welcome to the SGEM, Angela. Thanks so much, Ken. I'm very happy to be here and appreciate you having me. Well, I love hearing origin stories. So I get it. The sex and gender issue, I get it. I understand why you're so interested. But how did that, and wait for it, intersect with pulmonary embolism workup? It's a great question. And there's like a long answer and a short answer. I'll, I'll short. Give you something we've, in... got, we've got emergency <laughs> physicians here listening here, okay? We <laughs> do short, not short have long, short answers, please. Love it. So the, the truth to that is I'm a sex and gender researcher, right? I'm interested in sex differences and ways in which sex and gender influence disease, um, particularly acute presentations of disease. And the, and the true answer is because PE is really, really hard. And I don't think I appreciate that as a resident and trying to figure out who to test and who not to test was just this mysterious thing in residency. And so I've dedicated a lot of time and energy in trying to figure it out and in doing so, realize there's a lot of area for improvement in terms of health equity for women here. Um, and that's kind of how I got here. I think when we have medical students in the ER, you know, and you're you're asking them what's their differential for chest pain, this comes up every single time and figuring out what to do with it is one of the hardest things. So, so that's why I care so much about it. Well, I appreciate you letting the audience know about your biases. And this is one of your biases. You're really passionate about this. But I think you need to identify one of your other biases, and that is, you know, one of the SGEM hot off the press faculty, superstar Lauren Westifer. Yes, Dr. Westifer, you know her. I do. I know her well. I'm a big fan. Oh, I'm a big fan, too. And she is very interested in pulmonary embolism research. 
She is. And on a personal note, I should say her, her youngest is like one week older than my oldest. We were pregnant at the same, at the same time during the height of COVID getting vaccinated and getting hate for that. So big, big fan of Lauren. Yeah, she's, you know, I've been teaching almost for three decades and it was so wonderful to um, come across through social media uh, Lauren, about over 10 years ago, just when we started the SGEM. And she is a rock star in the world of medical education and just an amazing human being. But this is not the skeptic's guide to Lauren Westifer. This is the skeptic's <laughs> guide to emergency medicine. I'm not skeptical of Lauren. So um, uh, let's get to the author's conclusions from your study. Could you give us the quote from your abstract? What did you actually find out? Absolutely. So in this cohort, we found that females were more likely than males to receive care consistent with current guidelines and less likely to be diagnosed with a PE. All right. This is where you get to sit back. We've, we've set the table. We've set the table. Now you get to sit back and listen to our critical appraisal. And then we're going to bring back you to talk nerdy. Okay. You ready for that? Can't wait. Get prepared. Okay. So Corey, the quality checklist for observational studies. Did they address a clearly focused issue? Yes, I think they did. Did they use an appropriate method to answer their question? Yes, they did. How was their recruitment? Was it an acceptable method? It was. Did they accurately measure the exposure to minimize bias? Yes. How about the outcome? Was it accurately measured to minimize bias? I think it was. Do you think the authors, and that includes Angela identified all important confounding factors. Yeah, they did. And I, I found that it was an interesting list of covariates such as provider gender and some others. All right. Well, how was their follow-up? Was it complete enough? Yes. And how precise were the results? Where the confidence intervals were provided, it seemed fairly precise. And do you believe Angela and her results? I do. Do you think that the results can be applied to, let's say, your local population, where you work? Looking at the demographics, I think they're similar enough that I can. Okay. And do the results fit with other available evidence? So if we take a step back and say, how does this gel with all the other evidence that's out there on this issue? Yeah, it does. And we do like to follow the money. So uh, where was the funding for this study coming from? So this study was supported by three grants, one from the American Heart Association, one from the National Center for Advancing Translational Science, and the Office of Research on Women's Health. The authors declared no conflicts of interest. All right, let's get to the results themselves. They identified almost 2,000 patient encounters that met their inclusion criteria. The mean age was young, 36. Two-thirds were female, and the majority had a chief complaint of chest pain. Now, the revised Geneva score was calculated to be low, intermediate, or high risk at 36%, 62%, or 2% of the time, respectively. So there weren't a lot of high-risk patients. The majority were low to intermediate-risk patients in this cohort. But Corey, what was the key result? The key result of the study was that female patients were more likely to receive guideline-consistent care. Let's put some meat on that bone. Um, the primary outcome what were the numbers? For the primary outcome, receipt of guideline-consistent care based on the revised Geneva score, 70% of females versus 63% of males met the outcome with a p-value of 0.003. All right, how about the secondary outcomes? 
for the secondary outcomes, rate of D-dimer testing, D-dimer positivity, rates of CT pulmonary artery testing, and overall yield. Results were overall similar. However, D-dimers were more often performed in females, 76 to 71 percent, with a p-value of 0.015, and the PE diagnosis was made more frequently in males, with 5 percent of male patients being diagnosed with PE compared to 3 percent of females, p-value also 0.015. Okay, that's enough of the results section. Oh, we're into my favorite section. Yes, I look forward to talking nerdy, especially when we have a lead author on the show. We can get some more juicy details about their research. So, Angela, here we go. Five nerdy questions. I'm kicking it off. And I'm going to start with the, hey, revised Geneva score versus Wells criteria? Your group decided to use the Geneva rather than the Wells. So why did you head to Geneva instead of going back to the well? Because in my experience, people use the well more often where I'm working. So can you explain your decision to use the Geneva score instead of the Wells criteria? Absolutely. It's a very reasonable question because I agree with you. Most people do tend to use the Wells score, and that's what I find on shift as well. Um, they're both great scores. They're both well-validated internally and externally. Um, the, re the, the reason we went with Geneva is, is quite simple and just has to do with operationalizing research questions. This was a retrospective study, and I could find absolutely no way to reliably answer the question, is PE your most likely diagnostic consideration retrospectively? There's no checkbox in the chart. And even though we read the MDM of every single one of these charts, we still couldn't answer that question um, with good precision. So that's the reason we went with the Geneva score, simply because all of the components I was able to obtain from the chart retrospectively. Well, I'm glad you think that we're being reasonable. Um, and yeah, the the Achilles heel, I think, of the Wells criteria is the subjective nature of that one question. But we would love to hear experts like Dr. Westifer or Jeff Klein, Dr. Perkrule himself, weigh in on this when this is published. So the second question, female sex as a risk factor. I've heard several times when asking residents and other clinicians what risk factors someone has for PE that female sex is often cited as being a risk factor. Can you address this seeming misconception based on your results? I absolutely can, and I'm so glad that you pulled this out because this is just really critically important. What I was taught in medical school um, and what is still being taught based on what the medical students tell me is that women are at higher risk of having a clot. Women, women, women clot, 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 right? And so these two ideas are sort of connected in our brains, but it, there's a lot more nuance than that. So there is some truth to the fact that epidemiologic studies that look at population level data do show a small increase in females compared to males in terms of incidence of VTE prior to the age of 40 to 45. But we're talking about an extremely small difference on the order of, you know, fives to tens per 100,000 um, in this difference. And that difference is almost entirely accounted for by peripartum VTE. So that's one of the reasons, as we discussed in the inclusion and exclusion criteria, that we exclude pregnancy because we know that particularly the po immediate postpartum period is a very high risk time for VTE. But if you look at population level data overall, men are actually more likely to have VTE than women. 
And if you also look at just emergency medicine studies, this difference is not borne out. So in almost all of the large cohort studies, including NEDS, right, which is from a huge administrative database, the incidence by sex is approximately equal or it's higher in men. That's really interesting. So yeah, so you're saying that because of the peripartum period, you get this shift towards women. But when you sort of take that factor out, there's not as big a difference and it even weights toward men. That's really interesting. Absolutely. And the other piece of the puzzle, which we may get into later, is exogenous estrogens, right? So a lot of women fall out of the PERC criteria because they're on um, oral contraceptive pills. Um, and so the combination of exogenous estrogens and peripartum probably makes up that very small difference that we see. But that's accounted for in, in a lot of these criteria. So we don't have to just assume that femaleness by itself, it makes women higher risk of having a VTE. So that's really interesting. So it is reasonable to exclude women because I'm always, not always, but I'm often sort of saying, hey, why were women excluded? Was it reasonable or was it just a monosynaptic reflex of the IRB to say, yeah, let's not confuse the data. Let's keep it clean. Women are vulnerable populations, blah, blah, blah. Gosh, Ken, don't even get me started on that because you are exactly right. And we have to study women in order to know what happens in women's bodies because women are not just men with uteruses, right? And there's a long, I could go on a long trajectory or sidetrack about that, but I won't. In this case, the pathophysiology for VTE around pregnancy is different than non-pregnant um, patients. And that's the reason we excluded them. Number one, because it's different. And number two, because we would never be powered to say anything meaningful about that group because there were so few of them. Um, and other people like the Pregnancy Adjusted Years folks have done a great job at that. So very important, deserving of study. My study was not the right study to say, to comment on that tell you what, I will give you an open invitation to come back and do an SGEM extra to discuss this very important issue of excluding women from research trials. Okay. Or, and, I would love to do that. We can talk about it around COVID, around medications. There's lots of stuff there. Done. All right. Nerdy point number three, guideline inconsistent care. This is a really tough question. We bring the tough questions. What do you think drives clinicians not to follow guidelines? Well, this is the question, right? <laughs> you drive the hard questions, but these are the important questions. So I will clarify, qualify my answer by saying this is not evidence-based. This is what I think, right? I can't prove any of these things. I think number one, emergency doctors uh, sometimes act out of fear. Fear of litigation, fear of medical legal risk, but also fear of missing something because it feels crappy to miss something and for your patient to have a bad outcome. So I think that is one major component in the U.S., which I think is different, hopefully, than Canada, probably than Canada, certainly different than Western Europe. And that's borne out um, in the data. I would say a, a couple of other things I think are important. One is gender heuristics, which is the idea we kind of talked about previously, the idea that being female in and of itself uh, bestows some tremendous risk upon people. I think that we all have this gendered heuristic that we were taught in medical school that we have to unlearn, which is hard. And then a, an ode to Dr. Westifer, she has a great qualitative study about this where she asked people, you know, why don't you use the guidelines or do you use the guidelines? And the answers are uh, interesting and hilarious and sad. But a lot of people said, 
I know better than the clinical decision rules. Like I've been practicing for a long time. I don't need the clinical decision uh, tools or just I wanted an answer. Um, and as far as I'm concerned, those aren't really good, uh, good reasons uh, to stray from them. But I understand that the cognitive psychology is powerful and that people don't want to be wrong and people don't want to miss things. So I'm going to provide a friendly amendment. The friendly amendment is in your statement that this is not evidence-based. This is your opinion. And if you've seen the evidence-based pyramid, which I have trouble with, and there's limitations to the evidence-based medicine pyramid, sometimes we don't have great evidence. I understand that. But you're an expert. You are an expert. An expert opinion is at that foundational base level of that evidence-based medicine pyramid. So I accept that what you're saying is evidence-based and you are an expert. Now, how we interpret that and, and how much that is weighed is another question, but we always want to look for the best evidence. And sometimes the best evidence is expert opinion. So that's okay. And I'm glad you gave it. I appreciate that. Yeah, that's also interesting because I think that's a lot of where, you know, the evidence base and the individual patient in front of you come into conflict a little bit. And you can always argue that this patient is different somehow. Right. And that leads us into our next question, the clinical gestalt. So you found that the, that the plurality of PEs were diagnosed in patients who didn't receive guideline consistent care. So is that where gestalt becomes important when you have that person in front of you and you say, I'm going to work this person up in this way, even though they are, for instance, low risk by the, by the guidelines. Yeah, this is another interesting finding of the paper. And I'll admit at first I was kind of like, oh, no, like that's not the message that, <laughs> that I want to send, that most of the PEs were found in patients who did not follow the guidelines. So you can read that two ways. To interpret that, you have to understand the other side of the coin, which is how many patients who didn't follow the guidelines did not have PEs. And the answer is a lot more. Most patients did not have a PE. So this is where the cognitive psychology is important because if you saw the patient and you're like, I know they have a PE, I don't need the D-dimer, we're going straight to CT. And then they had a CT. You're like, gosh, I'm so good. Thank goodness I didn't waste 45 minutes or whatever, right? But then think about the 200 patients that didn't have a PE that you did that for, right? So there's a point of equipoise in here. Um, and the data, my data does show that a lot of these patients didn't receive guideline consistent care, if you will. But the way in which they weren't consistent is that the provider skipped the dimer. And so these would not have been missed PEs. Like the dimer is a really sensitive screening test. So presumably, and I can't prove this, of course, retrospectively, but presumably those patients all would have had positive D-dimers and would have gone on to be diagnosed either way. So the more important question is how many patients skipped the D-dimer or how many for whom we skipped the D-dimer did not have a PE? And the answer is several, several hundred, um, which is how I I came up with the math that we could have avoided a lot of CT scans if we had uh, followed the guidelines of those patients. Yeah, that's really interesting. I, you kind of touched on it there. It made me think about, I have conversations with uh, the residents a lot about, they're probably tired of hearing me say, your job isn't to predict the D-dimer. Your job is to predict the PE and decide if a D-dimer is useful. Because they always like, oh, the D-dimer is going to be positive. Well, they well, all say that. <laughs> they do. <laughs> there's this, there's this. What, you've heard about the hidden curriculum. There's this hidden curriculum somewhere that they want yes. to predict the D-dimer. And if they think it's going to be positive, it's then don't do it. 
and trying to reformat them to your job is to risk stratify the patient and decide if the D-dimer would be helpful. Absolutely. And so many times the D-dimer is not positive, right? But the point here is you have to decide who's the right patient to send the D-dimer in. And uh, it's just a critically important idea. And I think we'll get to this later too, but you have to decide what's the right thing to do in general for patients, right? So you might think, oh, taking this shortcut in this one patient is going to get them through faster. But A, it has a lot of potential harm to them in performing a potentially unnecessary CT pulmonary angio but also it, it, it overall lengthens their stay, right? We have evidence to show that if we follow guidelines, then overall the length of stay is significantly shortened because so many patients then don't need the CT. So for those operations folks that are like, RVUs, go, 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 you know, flow, this will improve your flow. And I think that's an important point for, for some of the folks that are listening. Yeah, that's good for knowledge translation because you've got to know what motivates people. And if you're a flow person, right. um, if you can right. if you can get the flow going and unconstipate that department by doing these types of things. But what I heard in that answer was maybe there's a big dimer agenda out there, you know, and this is all being funded by big dimer, the D dimer. Yeah. Or or that, you know, this has layers. It's like an ogre. It has layers, but everybody loves parfaits. But there are a lot of cognitive biases in here. And one of them that you sort of touched upon, I think, was the denominator neglect. I mean, the agenda is in the numerator, but the devil is in the denominator. So what's your denominator that you're looking at that informs your interpretation of, oh, yes, we got more overall if we, if we just went straight to uh, CT. But what was the denominator in there that you did and what was the potential harms that you created, not only just in flow, but also excessive time and anxiety? You know, oh, my goodness, I might have, you know, a PE and all sorts of things in there. Yeah, I, I could not agree more. And I think that for the resident listeners, like this is an idea that translates to many disease processes, right? Like finding the point of clinical equipoise at which you're hurting people by over-testing. And that's why we studied this population because young, healthy people, when you over-test them, you are absolutely potentially hurting them. And I know that my residents always say, well, but what if I miss something, you know, and no one ever got sued for doing an unnecessary CAT scan. And, and so I always say to them, yeah, but you got to A, do the right thing and B, decide who you want to be, right? Like what kind of doctor do you want to be? It's really important to me to be an excellent doctor and to follow the evidence. And that's all I'm suggesting people do here. Well, I reassure the residents that we all miss things. Everyone misses things. Mm -hmm. If you miss nothing, you are in the over-testing, over-diagnosing, and over-treating camp. And it is not a perfect sport. And you will miss things. It's what is an acceptable miss rate. And then the second thing I tell them is, you know what? I signed up to practice medicine, not to practice law. So I'm here to practice medicine. And I will do my best job possible in practicing medicine and I will leave the practice of law up to the lawyers. But I understand I work in a much different medical legal environment than you do south of the border. I agree with all of that 100%. And if you follow the evidence, I think you're well supported in your clinical decision making, even if you miss something, because somebody's going to miss something. That's how it works when your miss rate is not zero. All right. Well, this gets to my fifth and final question, and this might be the trickiest one. Guidelines are not godlines. And at the end of the day, we're talking about how concordant 
should you be with guidelines? Because we've already talked about, you know, well, people aren't following the guidelines. That was one of the previous questions. But guidelines are there to guide our care. It's right there in the word. Guidelines. They're not there to dictate our care. And you identified an association between how closely guidelines are followed for uh, the sex of the patient that was presenting with whatever got them into the algorithm to work them up for a pulmonary embolism. But what this research doesn't tell us is what's the correct percentage of PE guidelines that should be followed? Because here, even if you average them out between females and males, it was about two-thirds of the time. Well, we know zero is probably wrong, and I think that we can agree that 100% is probably wrong because in evidence-based medicine, there's the literature which informs our care, but there's still your clinical gestalt, your clinical expertise, your clinical judgment. And then finally, of course, what about the patient's values and preferences? And they should be asked what those are and where those three things come together. The guidelines, which is representing the literature, the clinical expertise, and the patient's values and preferences, where those things come together, that is evidence-based medicine. So um, Angela, what is the correct number down to the third decimal point for us to follow the PE guidelines and why? You got everything right there, even hinting at precision medicine, which is where we're headed, right? Like it depends on so many things and guidelines are not comprehensive. I am a physician first, right? I worked a full complement of shift for every year until three years ago when I got a grant. So like I'm a doctor and I get it. And I have to tell this quick story because I I feel sort of embarrassed to admit this, but I worked a shift at the VA recently where automatically my pretest probability is like exponentially higher in that setting because the, the old vets, like they don't come in unless something's wrong. And I saw a walking, talking PE. Like I went in the room, I can't even remember, but he had like active cancer, was tachycardic, hypoxic and short of breath. (laughs) That's exactly right. Just like a farmer, you know, something's wrong. Just figure out what it is. And I came out of the room and said, that guy is a walking, talking PE. You know what? I did not even pull up the Wells criteria. I didn't calculate it because I just was like, he's so high risk. I'm going to test it. And of course he had a PE. So that reiterated to me that I'm a good doctor, right? And you could argue that I should have done those other things, but I am human, right? And sometimes I do not follow guidelines. Maybe he would have been high risk by the guidelines, but it didn't matter to me in that, in that moment. So it's okay to not always follow guidelines, okay? Like they are there to guide your thinking and they're particularly important for junior physicians. And I want to emphasize that point before you have like developed your gestalt. However, I think they're more important than we realize for older doctors as well. I should say more experienced doctors as well. So what is the correct number or correct percent of time that we should follow the guidelines? It is Definitely higher than what was in this study, right? And I can tell you that because the yield for PE was incredibly low. So we diagnosed 5% of men and 3% of women with PE. That's too low, okay? If you look at the European studies, their yield is much, much higher than that, at least over 10%. So is it 100? No, of course not. But is it higher than 63 and 70%? Absolutely, yes, I would say. Um, So I, I think I'm on pretty solid ground to say that. You can always override the guidelines, of course, but I would challenge yourself to at least go through the exercise. And if you're, one of the things we haven't talked about is risk tolerance, but I think, and I'm going to study this in the future, that an individual physician's risk tolerance probably has a lot to do with how this goes, but force yourself to go through the exercise, at least plug them into the Wells calculator, the Geneva 
calculator and see where they fall. Maybe you get a negative D dimer and you're still uncomfortable and you end up scanning them. I'm not going to tell you how to practice on each individual patient, but look and see what happens and see if, if the answer is what the evidence suggests, knowing that that's for a large body um, of, of patients. So just remember that the, the plural of anecdote is not data. And what we're talking about today is data um, to, to try to guide your practice. I love what you said there. Your first thing that you said in the response was, it depends. And that's one of the core concepts of the practice of medicine. It all depends. There are lots of different Absolutely. moving parts and, and we've got to consider each clinical situation as a unique encounter. As I always say, um, you're unique, just like everyone else. And so we need to, to be taking into account our clinical experience, where our practice setting is, and that patient that's sitting in front of us. And while you didn't give me a precise number, you did give me a direction. And I generally agree with your direction that probably two thirds when you have high quality evidence isn't the right number. And it's probably higher than that. One other thing to keep in mind for how clinical decision tools and clinical guidelines are derived, right, is all about statistics. And there's no way that any tool is ever going to encompass every single risk factor. Patients who have what I call pan-inflammatory conditions, right, for example, lupus, even inflammatory bowel disease, are at very high risk of VTE. That's not in the tool. You have to know that and you have to decide to test that patient. So, you know, it's okay, but it requires that you raise the bar for your own practice because you have to know the epidemiology of all of these things, which is challenging. But the last point I want to make is that in this cohort for my site, there were only 40 PEs, okay? Um, among all these patients, over a thousand patients from this site, there were 40 PEs and I reviewed them all by hand because I wanted to make sure they were real, of course. And these were mostly not normal people, like almost all of these were provoked PEs. So the other message I want to send to physicians is that you've got this, like, you know what the big risk factors are, and you're not going to miss these. The young, healthy person with nothing and a negative D-dimer does not have a PE. It's the patients that have cancer. It's the patients that have clotting disorders. It's the patients that have lupus and other rheumatologic disorders that smoke that are on exogenous estrogen. There are very, very, very few subtle PEs that you're going to miss in this cohort. So please take faith in that if, if it helps you at all. Yeah. Yeah. One of the things that when, you know, we refer to talking to the residents in Gestalt a lot, one of the things that I like to ask, especially the interns, because they come, you know, they come in in August and September and they come out and they're like, this guy, this guy doesn't sound like a PE. I had this conversation the other day with an intern about a, a, a possible dissection, you know, clearly wasn't because they basically don't exist. So I said, it's like, this doesn't sound like one. And I said, how many of them have you missed? Well, and how many have you diagnosed? Well, <laughs> so you can't develop gestalt if you haven't actually done the job. And that's where these clinical decisions, you, 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 you referenced this before. It's very useful in junior practice practitioners because that's where these decision tools come in handy is you you said that you saw this walking talking PE and you didn't you didn't risk stratify them but yes you did because by Wells it was your top diagnosis that's a three you're done because the next thing is tachycardia or hypoxia and now you're above four right like you knew that you didn't do the math but you knew that but you don't know that until you've seen them 
I agree with that. We've tried to do some of the work for you, right? Like everybody uses PCARN to, to know what kid to head CT, right? So just use these. <laughs> yeah. And then when you've done it 150 times, whatever, then you can start saying, well, something about this one stands out. We, we did actually find that in this paper too, although it was not statistically significant. I believe the p-value was 0 0.06. We found that increasing provider experience was associated with not uh, following guidelines. And I think the reason is because of com more comfort with clinical gestalt. Well, you have to go back to how do we get clinical decision instruments or tools? We crowdsource it with clinicians and we crowdsource it using a derivation set. And then we try to find those items that most closely are associated with the outcome of interest. And then we go ahead and hopefully validate that to see if it actually does work. And that's where these clinical decision instruments come. So I agree with both of you that this is a tool I use to train residents and junior doctors can use this. And I don't mean junior as they're, they're not intellectually as smart. They are often smarter than me. I'm just a lot older. And that's the only advantage I have is 30 years of seeing patients. And I try to emphasize that they go, Oh, well, how did you know that you're so smart? No, I'm not. I just had a 30 year head start, And most yeah. of them are smarter than me. You know, they've had much better training than I had. They have much greater access to knowledge and information. So I try to level that to the only, you know, real advantage I have is 30 years of seeing patients. And I'm just trying to translate that to them so they don't have to go through 30 years and have my misses. And they can do that with a clinical decision instrument and then become as efficient as Angela is where she walks in the room, doesn't have to show her math and go, oh yeah, that's a PE and walk out. And she's done that all behind the scenes internally mm -hmm. without explicitly saying, oh, okay, you know, they've got X, Y, and Z and I risk stratified them and they're more than a four well score and they're, you know, obviously perk positive. And so I'm just going straight to a CT, right? And that's what happens because boom, you have the clinical experience now. Yeah. You pull up the CT scan and you find the subtle, the subtle cortical irregularity on the hip and the resonance like, how'd you see that? I'm like, cause I was looking for it. I knew it was there. And because I've missed it before. Yeah. What a great teacher misses are. So Angela, is there, uh, we've, we've kind of gone through a lot of this already, but is there anything else you want to say about your research project or the topic in general? Gosh, that's such a big question. There's a lot of things I want to say about it. Well, just remember, we are going to have another podcast to talk about some of your other issues. <laughs> <laughs> That's fair. I think the take home message from this paper and what I want people to know is that the clinical decision tools are there to help you and to help us. And they're designed to help us serve our patients better. And I would just encourage people to think about the potential harm that is associated with over testing and to try to center the patient, not necessarily themselves. Um, and just to say that if you follow the evidence, you're gonna do a, a great job. It might evolve and it's work to keep up, um, but the evidence tells the truth, right? It starts with patient care and it ends with patient care. And as long as we're putting patients at the center of our decisions, we will be good clinicians. All right, Corey, it's time to comment on the author's conclusions and She's listening, okay? So be careful. Um, author's conclusions and compare them to the SGEMS conclusion. Can we agree with the author's conclusions? Yes. <laughs> All right. Well, how about giving us an SGEM bottom line? 
When working patients up for a PE, consider the guidelines and risk stratify with validated decision tools or clinical gestalt to avoid overtesting and overuse of advanced imaging. And can you resolve the case that you presented at the beginning of the podcast? You tell the nurse in answer to her question that the male patient was risk stratified as being high risk, so he got a CTPA without D-dimer testing. The female patient was lower risk, so she had a D-dimer tested and it was elevated, and therefore she ultimately also got CT imaging. Neither patient was diagnosed with a PE. So how do you think we should take this current study that's been published hot off the press in academic emergency medicine and apply it clinically? Understanding our own biases is important. One tool to try and avoid bias in this case is to consider using a validated risk stratification tool to help our decision-making process and applying that to the individual patient in front of you. And so what's that conversation going to sound like with the nurse? So you explain to the nurse that you utilize risk stratification tools and you use a set of objective criteria as well as some subjective criteria to decide what the most appropriate workup is. In low-risk patients, such as your female patient, you start with the D-dimer, and if it's elevated, you get the CT, in which case it was, while the male, due to his risk factors, was high risk, and this explains the difference in the initial testing. All right, it's time to announce the Keener Contest winner, and that's the winner from last season. So we're going back to last season, season number 11, and the last episode winner of the last episode from the last season was Dr. Mateus Cunha from Brazil. And I'm sorry if I mispronounced your name. I will buy you a beer when I'm in Brazil because I am going to be going to Brazil over the next year. Anyways, he is, Mateus, is a first-year resident of emergency medicine at the Federal University of San Paulo and apparently loves the SGEM. Well, thank you for saying that, Mateus, and it's nice to know that the SGEM has a global impact. Mateus knew that the protagonist's mother in the Squid Game series had diabetes and suffered from its complications. Corey, what's the question this week? Well, in honor of the coagulation cascade, we're going to ask, why was Rudolf Virchow expelled from the Charité Hospital? Is it Virchow? I'm, I just don't know how to pronounce names. Probably, probably, yeah, probably some, some pronunciation of Virchow. I tried to pronounce Charité, but I, you're, you're the Canadian, so I don't know. Well, if you know the answer of why Virchow was expelled from his hospital, then send an email to the sgem at gmail.com, and I will send you a cool skeptical prize. All right, now it's your turn, SGEMers. What do you think of this episode on sex and guideline-directed PE workups? What questions do you have for Angela and her team? Tweet your comments using hashtag SGEMHOP or post your feedback on the SGEM blog. The best social media feedback will be published in Academic Emergency Medicine. And you know that comment is directed at you, Dr. Jeff Klein and Dr. Lauren Westifer, so we're expecting some feedback. Thank you, Angela, for coming on the SGEM and talking about your <laughs> odd-off-the-press publication. Thanks so much for having me. It's been a pleasure. And I have to share one more fun fact about this paper that probably no one cares about but me. But today I printed it to reread it myself before we came on. And it says it was submitted on December 20th, 2022. And my daughter was born on December 27th, 
2022. So talk about pushing it to the finish line and doing well under pressure. Oh, I like that reference. You were pushing the finish line. <laughs> Anyways, thank you, Corey, for another great episode. Love working with you, man. Of course, can't always. And to finish the show, we are going to ask our guest skeptic to read the SGM tagline. Now, I want to be very egalitarian about this. I know that you did your training on the East Coast, and I think it was the Southeast in the Carolinas, but now you're like, dude, I'm on the West Coast. And so I'm wondering, can you split up the SGM tagline? And for the first part, I want to do it in your best Southern accent. And then on the second half, get all West Coasty on me. I'll do my best, but I'm going to flip it and do it in the opposite order, okay? Remember, bro, to be hella skeptical of anything you learn, even if you heard it on the Skeptic's Guide to Emergency Medicine. Talk to y'all later. She knows that you, but she's always a woman to me.